0: at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe.
1: Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 20th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. On this week's show, Katherine Matisik has a roundup of the week's most interesting online news stories, and then we'll hear from Jennifer Long about creating bioengineered vocal cords.
0: Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have Katherine Matisik. She's here to talk about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on conquering an amphibian fungus. In a first, researchers have rid an island of a major amphibian-killing fungus. This is a really tenacious fungus, Katherine. Can you give us a little history? Sure.
2: Uh, Without going too much into what this fungus does, uh, for listeners who are a little bit squeamish, chytrid, otherwise called BD, is a microscopic fungus that lives in the water. It infects the skin of amphibians like salamanders, newts, frogs. And since it was first described in 1998, it's wiped out dozens of species. Once infected, they develop ulcers and go through convulsions, eventually dying of either starvation or asphyxiation. Because remember, a lot of these creatures breathe through their skin. It's a really nasty disease. And even though antifungal drugs can cure individuals, there are no good ways of saving entire populations. That's because the fungal spores are always present in the wild. So to save the amphibians, biologists are trying out vaccines and treatments with beneficial bacteria. In some cases, they've even resorted to removing vulnerable species from the wild entirely and keeping them in zoos.
0: Or to keep them away from the fungus that's out
2: there? Yep. The toad
0: that they rescued in this story, the midwife toad, already had a few
2: problems before the fungus came along. And that's how they got exposed, right? That's right. Because the toad evolved without any predators, it was nearly wiped out when cats, rats, and snakes arrived on the island of Majorca with settlers many centuries ago. Since the 1990s, scientists have been trying to bring it back from the brink of extinction. They successfully increased the number of toad colonies on the island to almost 25. But in the process, they did exactly what you were saying, they accidentally introduced this fungus. The toads picked up the disease while they were held in a captive breeding facility. Let's get to the rescue part. How does one separate a toad from its fungus? In ways that are worthy of a movie. And I'm not talking Disney. First, the researchers removed nearly 2,000 tadpoles from two pools in the mountains. Some of them were airlifted by helicopter. The researchers treated the tadpoles with a potent fungicide and meanwhile drained and dried out the ponds. When they put the tadpoles back a week later, they found they hadn't entirely eradicated the fungus. So, several summers later, they did a repeat, but this time they scrubbed the bottoms of the ponds with a potent biocide. Success! The next year, all the tadpoles and toads were fungus-free. It seems like
0: there are some special circumstances in this case tiny populations of toads in isolated ponds. And the ponds actually have a hard surface, so you can scrub it. It's not just mud and more mud underneath that. Can this intervention be used elsewhere?
2: The researchers are hopeful that it can, but they aren't making any promises. They say that this kind of decontamination will probably only work for small, isolated ponds in dry climates like the Mediterranean and with the hard bottoms that you talked about, Sarah. In other places, the fungus can be spread by other host species, or it can survive in wet leaves or in bodies of water that are just too large to drain and treat. But this does give researchers an incentive to continue to find a solution to this worldwide problem. Next
0: up, we have a story on crowdsourcing cancer detection. This seems to be a common theme on the podcast lately, using the wisdom of crowds to solve problems, be it detecting exoplanets or figuring out protein structures. But can a crowd help detect cancer? Better yet, can a crowd of pigeons help detect cancer? Before we get to the pigeons, let's start with a problem we're trying to
2: solve. What makes some types of cancer detection difficult? Cancer detection usually starts out as a visual challenge. Does this lumpy spot in a routine mammogram justify a biopsy? And do the cells in these biopsy slides look malignant, or do they look benign? If the color or the resolution of an image is off, even slightly, it can throw off the entire diagnosis. Likewise, a lot of cells that look cancerous can turn out to be non-cancerous growths. If you've ever known somebody who's gotten a biopsy, you probably understand the uncertainty surrounding the whole thing. Training doctors and medical technicians to tell the difference is expensive and time-consuming, and computers aren't yet up to the task.
0: And I have to ask at this point, why are we talking about pigeons? Why are they
2: in the equation? So it turns out that pigeons have a remarkable sense of vision, in some ways surpassing us humans, and definitely me. Um, (laughs) They sense five different colors as opposed to our three, red, green, and blue, And they don't fill in the gaps like we do when we're doing visual processing. This could make them better at spotting the sort of abnormalities that people are looking for when they're looking for cancer.
0: How did the researchers set this up so that pigeons could make these discriminations and we can compare them with computers and people.
2: Yeah. So first they put the pigeons in a box with a computer screen that cycled through random biopsy slides. Some showed cancerous cells and some showed cells that weren't cancerous. The pigeons picked their answer by hitting either a blue button or a yellow button. If they got the answer right, they were rewarded with a food pellet. Over time, they were able to distinguish tiny visual features that made a cell cancerous or not. To avoid the influence of any human interference, something that's referred to as the clever Hans effect, they were isolated from people the entire time. So they couldn't
0: get a subtle clue from their trainers or handlers that they were picking the correct one.
2: Exactly, such as a grimace if they got it wrong or a big smile if they got it right.
0: As I mentioned earlier, this turns out to be a crowdsourcing solution. How did individual pigeons and teams of pigeons do compared to humans and computers?
2: Well, at first the pigeons weren't that great, barely better than chance. But after training for a month, individual pigeons could identify cancerous cells 80% of the time. Now that's good, but it's not as good as human experts. But when researchers averaged the guesses of all 16 pigeons involved, Their accuracy rose to 99 percent, which is as good as trained human experts and much more reliable than computers. That is incredible. But is it practical? Well, here's where the oh wow factor sort of dwindles into practicality, I guess. Um, You know, there's a reason they say medicine is an art. In order to diagnose something like cancer, doctors take into account many, many factors in addition to the images they see on a biopsy slide. Pigeons, for all their visionary feats, just can't do that. They also have the same trouble that humans do when looking at images that appear to be cancerous cells, but actually aren't, so-called false positives. Researchers say that as good as pigeons are now, computers are probably going to surpass them before it's practical to use them in the lab.
0: Lastly, we have a story on difficult math. A mathematician at the University of Chicago has made a big advance for complexity theory by producing a new and improved algorithm that can tell whether two networks are the same or not. This new algorithm requires far fewer steps than older attempts to solve the problem. Let's start with complexity theory. What is it?
2: Complexity theory is basically the study of what's hard or easy to solve with a computer. In it, the key thing is how the number of steps it takes to solve a problem grows with the size of the input.
0: The network comparison problem that we're talking about here is classed as NP in complexity theory,
2: also known as the difficult class of problems to solve. What does that mean exactly? So there's two different classes of problems, as you mentioned. We'll start with the simple version. Suppose, for example, that you want to determine whether a given number is prime and cannot be divided by another number. The number of computational steps in that calculation grows pretty slowly with the number of digits in the number itself. This kind of problem is said to be solvable in polynomial time and is in the complexity class P. On the other hand, suppose you want to divide a given number into all of its factors. That requires a lot more calculations. The number of steps is thought to blow up exponentially with the number of digits, placing this kind of problem in the class NP, which stands for non-deterministic polynomial. Basically, that's the hard stuff.
0: How much of an improvement is this new network comparing algorithm to older ones?
2: So, the next best method, which is sometimes used to compare networks of people who have gotten the flu, for example, how these cases have been transmitted from person to person. The next best method was developed in 1983. In that method, the number of steps grows exponentially with the number of nodes, or in this case, flu victims, in the networks. In this latest algorithm, the number of steps grows only slightly faster than a typical P-class, or Easy class problem. Some researchers have called this the biggest advance in theoretical computing in a decade. Now,
0: people have solved this network comparison problem in other ways, so no one's really been waiting around for a new solution. But the excitement here isn't just about that, right?
2: That's right, Sarah. The exciting thing is how this problem has been moved from one class, the super complex, to the relatively simple class. This gives researchers, computer scientists, theoreticians hope that other problems once considered incredibly difficult may not be so difficult to solve after all. On the downside, if it's easy for these problems to move from one class to the other, many things, such as internet cryptography techniques, may become very vulnerable.
0: What else is on the site this week, Catherine?
2: We have a story on ancient Incan mummies and also a story on why humans can outlearn chimpanzees. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on Chilean science protests and a story on a new agreement between the U.S. and Cuba to protect coral reefs. So be sure to check those out on the site. Thanks, Catherine.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Katherine Matisik is an online editor for our daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org.
1: When we speak, the flexible tissues making up our vocal cords vibrate in response to our breath. But if those tissues are scarred and stiff, no sound can come out. Voice impairments due to damaged vocal cords affect tens of millions of people in the U.S. alone, and the delicate nature of the vocal fold tissues involved makes transplants tricky. But this week, scientists led by chang Yin Ling announced in Science Translational Medicine that they've bioengineered vocal fold tissues capable of producing sound. UCLA Medical School laryngologist Jennifer Long explains the process, this week in Science. I'm Suzanne Bard. Walk me through the anatomy and physics of vocal production in
3: humans. What happens when we talk? The sound of voice is produced when air flows from the lungs over the two vocal cords, which are located in the larynx, also called the voice box, which is in the neck. The energy from the airflow is transferred to the vocal cords and sets them into vibration against each other. They open and close very rapidly, over 100 times per second. Now, when the vocal cords close, no air passes through. So that rapid interruption of the airflow sets up a sound wave in the air that exits the larynx. That sound is really just a buzz or a hum until it's formed by the mouth and the throat into speech.
1: And so what about when things go wrong? How can vocal cords be damaged?
3: There are a lot of different causes of voice problems. The paper that we're talking about from Ling et al. addresses one cause of voice problems, which is scar tissue or injury of that vibrating vocal cord tissue. It's really of great interest to voice doctors because it's very hard to treat. The vocal cords can be scarred sometimes from many years of voice overuse. Sometimes there can be congenital problems where they're not missing, but there may be a small area within the vocal cords where there's what we call a pit or a loss of some of that vibratory tissue. It's not the whole vocal cord, but just a small area that is damaged from birth. Or there can be injury from having had surgical procedures. Some people who have papillomas or other chronic problems of the vocal cords require a lot of surgeries over their lifetime and each one can add a little bit more scar tissue which can build up. And one of the more common causes we see is radiation therapy that is used often to treat laryngeal cancer. So we might remove that vocal cord in order to remove the cancer and as it heals then you would also have a scarred vocal cord that's not able to vibrate normally.
1: So there's a population of people out there for various reasons who could potentially benefit from vocal cord implants of some kind?
3: Initially the population would be very small of people who would benefit from a vocal cord implant and that's because the first people to be treated would be ones who didn't have cancer, the ones who had this scar tissue that had built up over time or were born with scar tissue. However, if it proved to be successful and if we could show that there was no danger of inciting further cancer, then this technology could be opened to many, many more people by including those people who had had laryngeal cancer. All right. so have there
1: been any attempts previously to repair vocal cords and how has
3: that gone? There are a lot of clinical techniques that voice surgeons use to repair vocal cords. They tend to be technically challenging, and the results are spotty So for that reason, there's not any one technique that is really in widespread use. A lot of what we do now focuses on trying to supply extra bulk to the tissue so that those vocal cords are at least able to open and close normally. What we can't do is restore the normal extracellular matrix that allows the vocal cords to vibrate in the first place. So there has not been a good replacement for that very specialized extracellular matrix. So it's that particular
1: vibratory quality that's the sticking point?
3: The vocal cords have a very orderly arrangement of a specialized extracellular matrix. This is what allows them to vibrate, and that's also what is damaged if they become scarred or have a congenital injury. So the vocal cords consist of fibers of collagen that are aligned and also elastin which supplies some stretchiness and a lot of hyaluronic acid which is a glycoprotein that we think adds some internal lubrication and then a whole lot of other smaller extracellular matrix molecules as well that support the tissue and that fiber structure. So it's really that orderly array that allows the vocal cord to vibrate with a manageable amount of energy transfer. So if that orderly array is disrupted, for example by scar tissue, that would deposit a lot more collagen or loss of the elastic fibers. That tissue becomes much more difficult to set into vibration. And sometimes that's what bothers patients the most. Their voice, although the voice is not normal, the voice quality may be a secondary complaint to the amount of effort that it takes to produce voice. If you think about blowing air along the surface of a fabric to try to make it move. It's much easier to move something lightweight that has a lot of space between the threads, like a linen weave. It would take a lot more airflow energy to move a thick denim fabric. The same thing happens with the vocal cords. If those fibers become too close together, too heavy, and without the normal components, it takes a lot more personal energy that you're expelling from your lungs to set those vocal folds into vibration. And that's really fatiguing and disturbing for the patients. So let's talk
1: about the Ling paper in Science Translational Medicine this week, Engineering Vocal Cord Tissue. This is a different way of trying to solve this problem, which obviously couldn't be done through a transplant of an organ. Tell me how you go about engineering vocal cord tissue. This paper
3: was really interesting in that they were able to harvest cells from human vocal folds. So normally we can't get cells out of human vocal cords because just the act of taking a sample to get some normal cells would be incredibly damaging for the patient. But they were able to get some larynges that were being removed for other reasons, and they isolated the epithelial cells and the fibroblasts from those human vocal cords. They then put the fibroblasts within a collagen matrix and put the epithelial cells on top to make what looked like a rudimentary vocal fold with these two different cell types overlying collagen. One of the really interesting things that they showed was that as this structure developed in vitro in the lab, it took on more features that resembled the actual vocal fold. So they did a proteome analysis where they used mass spectrometry to identify hundreds of proteins in this engineered tissue. and They found that many of those vital extracellular matrix components of the vocal cord were present in this developing structure in vitro. This really fortunate proteome result relied on having the two cell types present, so both the fibroblasts and the epithelial cells within this collagen scaffold. When they just had one cell type Present, they didn't get quite the diversity of proteins. So this was a promising finding that a structure that is at least on its way towards developing into the complex structure of the vocal fold might be created in the lab. Okay,
1: so once they had the engineered vocal cord tissue, how did they go about testing whether or not it would vibrate in the same way as human vocal cords?
3: The authors tested their engineered vocal cord mucosa in what we call an excised larynx setup. They removed animal larynges and surgically removed the vibrating part of one of those vocal cords. They then replaced it with their engineered tissue and sutured it into place. They could then pass airflow through the larynx as would normally be done to produce voice and watched the vibration with high-speed video. When they did that, they were able to see that, as expected, removing the normal vibratory vocal cord tissue really disrupted the vibrations, not surprising. But then when they replaced it with their engineered tissue, they were able to show vibration that was very close to normal. They also did acoustic analysis of the sound that was produced in this excised larynx system, and again, found sound quality that was quite close to normal. Interesting. So in any kind of implant or
1: transplant, it seems like the immune system is something that has to be taken into consideration. Is that the case here?
3: It absolutely is. The authors did look at immune response to their grafts. They implanted them not in the larynx but underneath the kidney capsule of mice in mice that were programmed to have immune systems that replicated the human system. Now fortunately they found that there was no immune response towards these grafts even when the immune system was not matched. So this would be analogous to having a donor vocal cord cell transplanted into a different recipient. In their mouse system, there did not seem to be an immune response in that situation.
1: Interesting. So does that suggest that you might be able to do this kind of transplant without immunosuppressive drugs?
3: Their findings do suggest, with a lot more study of course, that we might be able to do these specific cell-based transplants without immunosuppressive drugs. And the reason that that might work is that these cells are very purified populations so they don't carry along with them a lot of the white blood cells that are responsible for the immune response to solid organs. There's a lot more work that needs to be done to address that question but at this point it was a really promising result. One other hurdle that remains is the question of where one would get these human vocal fold cells. It's really not feasible to biopsy these cells from normal persons it might be feasible to extract them from cadavers. So in the same way that you would remove organs from a transplant donor, you may be able to remove the vocal folds from that transplant donor and then isolate the cells for transplantation into the recipient. Interesting. So have there been other types of tissues that have been successfully engineered in humans? There has been a lot of recent excitement over engineered trachea tissue In that system, an acellular scaffold was seeded, again, with epithelial cells and transplanted into a few human recipients worldwide. The tracheal transplants have had mixed outcomes with a lot of really encouraging early success, and those groups are now pursuing formal clinical trials.
1: Okay, so by reverse engineering vocal cords, what have scientists learned about this part of our anatomy that wasn't previously
3: understood? I think one of the most important things that Ling and colleagues have demonstrated from this work is the importance of having both epithelial cells and fibroblasts together, and that having both of these cells in an appropriate environment can promote the development of a vocal cord-like structure. It's really only been in recent few years, I would say, that the importance of the vocal fold epithelium has been recognized, and that is because The fibroblast layer, which is underneath the epithelium, is where all that specialized extracellular matrix is. So the layer with the fibroblasts is critically important to allow the vocal fold to vibrate. We're now starting to recognize that the epithelial layer on top is important in perhaps having a permissive role in developing that specialized extracellular matrix as well as in the vibration itself. So where do we
1: go from here? I mean, what are the hurdles that researchers have to get over before we can see engineered vocal cord implants for people who need them?
3: I think the most important next step is identifying what happens to this engineered vocal fold after it's implanted. With any tissue, there can be scar tissue that forms after a surgical procedure. And for many other parts of the body, the scar tissue is acceptable. But in the vocal folds, That scarring is exactly what we're trying to treat so it's really not acceptable to have recurrence of any major amount of scarring after implanting this tissue so that remains to be seen whether we can implant a tissue engineered vocal fold and have it still function in vibration adequately to make the whole procedure worthwhile
1: For you as a scientist, when you see research like this, what excites or surprises you the most?
3: I think it's really exciting to see this research that is trying to address function of a tissue by addressing the form. This work is aiming to solve the problem at its source, which is that the extracellular matrix is inadequate to produce voicing. This work is trying to address that.
1: Thanks so much for speaking with me, Dr. Long.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Jennifer Long discusses bioengineering of vocal fold implants. This week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers.